0: Hello, welcome to a podcast lecture on dispossessing and repossessing the wilderness. This is Dr. Barry, and I am talking to you today without the aid of visuals. The main purpose of this is that I think we are all uh, excited and uh, intrigued by the potential of not having to sit at a screen and look at things and also not necessarily have to read. So I will maybe occasionally point images that you may want to Google when you have time, but I want to give us all a break from the screen. So I hope you enjoy the podcast and the historical background and context that I'm providing for our upcoming investigations into dams, nuclear energy, suburbia, plastics, masculinity, and so, and heteronormativity, and so much more. Today's lecture will weave together ideas about dispossession and repossession of spaces from the late 1800s through the 1950s in the United States. The control of space, the literal physical altering of space, but also the control of the stories about place and the connections that place have to personal identity, especially gendered and racial identities, emerge in the Gilded Age, they go through the early Cold War, and they are with us still today. Much of this control and the stories we tell about it have been presented by the story makers as triumphs of Western culture. For a very long time, the story makers were those who had worked dis- desperately hard to build the structures and the ideas that we are now beginning to question. Proof of masculine and technoscientific greatness were uh, things to be celebrated in these stories and the histories created by men whose brothers, uncles, grandfathers had great stakes in those, in those triumphs, heroic victories over forces of nature that threatened to undo civilization as it was valued and promoted in the United States, but also throughout much of the global north. The story this podcast tells will have five chapters, Each chapter details a bit about a particular place and the cultural will that was forced upon the place by the white male oligarchy that controlled the mechanisms of American government at all levels of government, local, state, and federal, well into the 20th century. But the chapters also to think about also ask us to think about which parts of the stories don't get told, or at least think about how the or- morals of the stories are represented and re understood, remembered over time. First chapter, Central Park. <coughs> By the mid to late 1800s, urbanity was beginning to encroach on the lands that many elite Americans had hoped would remain pastoral and agricultural for time immemorial. Factories belching smoke and immigrants scurrying to work along streets littered with trash, human feces, and animal manure painted a picture that many middling and elite white Americans did not want to see. While culture and technological domination of humans over nature had been roundly celebrated for centuries, these cities and the technology of manufacturing and mechanization, the machine in the garden as it was referred to, seemed to take culture just one step too far. Reformers, who called themselves progressives, set about finding ways to mitigate the worst effects of too much culture, and one of their most enduring ideas was in addition to something as simple as trash pickup, was the construction of public urban parks. Central Park was conceived in 1853 and completed by the 1870s. We talked about it last week when we thought about... the statue uh, of the suffrage movement that is now there. It was designed and built by Frederick Law Olmsted, the gentleman who in our lecture a couple of weeks ago suggested that slave women were too masculine to be beautiful or really even to be women at all. The park would be crafted to be a liminal space, somewhere between civilization and wildness. Consider this interpretation from the current website from the Central Park Conservancy's homepage. Quote, on July 21st, 1853, the New York State Legislature enacted into law the setting aside of more than 750 acres of land, central to Manhattan Island, to create America's first major landscaped public park. They would soon refer to it as the Central Park. Many socially conscious reformers understood that the creation of a great public park would improve the public health and contribute greatly to the formation of a civil society. Immediately, the success of Central Park fostered the urban park movement, one of the great hallmarks of democracy in 19th century America. The design of one of the great masterpieces of American art was the result of the 1858 competition won by Connecticut-born journalist and agriculturalist Frederick Law Olmsted and British-born and trained architect Calvert Vaux. They named their plan Greensward for their preferred landscapes of sweeping meadows and vast water bodies designed to appear limitless while brilliantly belying the park's long and narrow rectangle within New York City's rigid grid. These grand pastoral scenes were carefully juxtaposed with the intimacy of picturesque woodlands featuring dense plantings, meandering streams, and dramatic rockwork arranged to include naturalistic, but not naturalistic caves, grottos, and cascades. Moving through these orchestrated views would be the antidote to the congestion and unforgiving pace of work and the crowded conditions in which much of the soaring population lived. End of quote. Notice that this particular introduction to the park is one of those stories told by the story makers of great triumph. This was a hallmark of democracy, they say. It was socially conscious reformers who wanted to make society more, quote unquote, civil by providing a natural outlet. The problem is that in choosing the site of the park, city officials chose to disrupt the neighborhood of Seneca Village, a neighborhood of free black Americans who had lived in the area to escape the racism and exclusion they found in many other parts of the city. Those residents who owned land received compensation from the city, but many who were poor and or who were squatters who lived not far from the village itself were simply displaced, kicked out. Thus, Central Park is a place that is a cultural attempt to create a visual myth of nature and a myth of civility. That image of nature is, was ordered and uninhabited and thus sublime. As time progressed, the areas around much of the par- much of the park, gentrified and Black Americans, were increasingly physically far from Central Park and thus less inclined to recreate themselves there. A note on the word re- recreate, It is a word that came into vogue during these years of the 1890s through the mid-20th century. People believed that they needed to go into nature in order to recreate, but to literally recreate themselves as human beings that felt vital connection to themselves, to one another, to the non-human world. Uh, So that word recreate and recreate is an important one to think about. This is a long historical process, the dispossession of Central Park. And it's a story that I'm not gonna go into uh, too much detail here, but it is worth learning more about on your own. And we will think a bit about the legacy of this vision of nature as being a refuge really only for middling white Americans and a profoundly cultural space that is supposedly recreating nature for recreation. When we study Christian Cooper and queer ecology in Central Park in a few weeks. Suffice it to say for our purposes that Central Park is the first in a long history of park ideas to present the natural as being both curated by and devoid of humans. Chapter 2, National Parks. These ideas of curation of nature uninhabited by human beings as being the pinnacle of the natural would have a national impact with the arrival of national parks in the 1870s. The National Park Service itself, the one you may have heard of, doesn't arrive until 1916, but Yellowstone and Yosemite, two of the crown jewels of the park system still to this day, are designated as national parks in the Gilded Age, And they were created specifically to allow elite white Americans who could afford to leave the East Coast to escape the unhealthful developments of an industrializing world and to conserve and preserve natural resources that had once seemed infinite but now seemed threatened. This was especially true for trees. By the 1870s, the national government had, via war, treaty, theft, availed itself of millions of acres called the public domain, but it also opened up that public domain for uh, the use of corporations and industrializing America, it specifically the harvesting of trees in forests across the American West, the Pacific Northwest, and the old Northwest of Michigan, Minnesota, Wisconsin, etc. The federal government believed it had a right to do with that land whatever it wanted, sell it, rent it, section it off for a variety of uses. And so in the Gilded Age, it began to do just that. Much sold to private owners under the Homestead Act of 1863. Some of it was given to a system of national universities. You're attending one of them right now. Some of it was the minerals underneath some of this land was leased to private explorers. And sections of the public domain became public lands, national parks, national forests, eventually wilderness areas, wildlife refuges, etc. All of these were to be held in perpetuity by the federal government for protection and management from overuse. But of course, as we know, the federal government often sold out to the highest bidder, allowed deforestation to occur allowed toxic mining to happen all throughout the public domain. And as Mark Spence, an environmental historian, tells us in his work, Dispossessing the Wilderness, indigenous peoples whose rightful place and presence in the parks and on the national forests were violently and intentionally removed in order to make nature appear pure and unsullied by human presence and to supposedly protect the land from certain overuse. This was a particularly unique moment in the long history of America's national understanding of its relationship with nature. You will recall the European colonist view of nature as frightening. The notion of untamed wild nature in need of civilizing seems to continue with us even today when we think about our wonton use of pesticides and other agents of death in something as simple as our residential landscaping. Control of nature permeated most mainstream discourse in the United States until the late 1800s, when a few thought leaders, like John Muir, came to fear for the fast disappearing natural resources, most evident with the depletion of the nation's forests, but also increasingly obvious in the pollution of air and water in incipient urban places." Those places were mining towns in the Intermountain West that might only have a few hundred citizens all the way to the tenement-clogged metropolises on the East Coast of New York City, Philadelphia, and Boston. It seemed as though America's rush to dominate international trade in the Gilded Age and grow economically was coming at a great cost for anyone who wanted and was willing to see the cost. A cultural fear of effeminacy of men who were quickly becoming middle-class white-collar or at least managerial class in the factories coincided with its concern for nature's disappearing bounty and thus began a national demand for solutions to both a loss of masculinity and male identity and a loss of soul-soothing nature. National parks, it was thought, could then provide a salve for many of the nation's wounds. Depressive, nature-starved people could seek beauty and respite in the parks. Effeminate men could go into into the parks to hone their masculine skills through hunting. And perhaps it is no surprise that the Boy Scouts of America also rose during this period of time. And then, of course, also rivers, forests, and animals could be preserved for future generations to be able to recreate themselves in the same way. Here is the important thing. Here, the idea of nature that we have been talking about shifts a bit. Men's natural masculinity, it turns out by the Gilded Age, could be threatened with too much civilization. The idea of the noble savage arrives just as the Indian Wars end in these years. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. And nature could actually be too civilized, too controlled. There was an end to humans' ability to control nature And this was deeply disturbing. There was something to be said for the wild, even for those Anglo-European elite classes. White women, too, could benefit from the national parks, as their aesthetic senses could be aroused with the beauty of such places. And since parks were controlled nature, first by the army and then by their own service of rangers, they weren't that dangerous for sensitive and mostly weak women. Of course, women often pushed back on the idea, demanding access to hikes and fishing and other kinds of outdoor activities. But these women tended to be considered radicals in the tradition of Amelia Bloomer and other dress reformers, political reformers like Jane Adams, and sexuality reformers like free love advocate Victoria Woodhull. Those women who demanded equal access to the outdoors were not real women after all. And so National Park's came to exist alongside national forests as a means for preserving masculinity and femininity, as well as conserving America's national identity, all the while managing corporate America's access to public lands, such as trees and minerals, and national discourse about which humans belonged in nature, about which ones, which kinds of humans belonged in nature and which did not. This will become important when we read Carolyn Finney and her critiques of mainstream environmentalism because it was around around the national parks that mainstream environmentalists, known then as preservationists, really rallied. There were also conservationists who believed that natural resources should be managed scientifically in order to conserve them for use in the future. This would be more the ilk of Teddy Roosevelt versus John Muir. This is the story we often tell because the storytellers told it themselves. Last week, we read Peter Bogue about Mount Rushmore and the heteronormative assumptions that seem chiseled into the rock there, but are more fragile when they're really examined. It was three of the four men in that rock who are the storytellers. They not only lived the stories, but they then wrote uh, the memories. And they presided over a profound shift in the culture of sexuality in the United States, namely the emergence and naming of heterosexuality. This connects to the Boy Scouts, to our friend Teddy Roosevelt that we read about with Donna Haraway in very important ways. As middle-class Anglo-American men increasingly tried to make sense of their new place in the industrializing world, they shored up their gender identities, masculinity all the way, and their racial identities, whites, were far superior to all others. And they also began to shore up their sexual identities, heterosexual not to be equated with any kind of fairy activity. As George Chauncey, who's one of the first and earliest historians of sexuality, says beautifully, quote, middle-class men's fear of the emergence of the fairy and effeminate men who dressed at, at least partially in women's clothing and attracted other men who were attracted to men and or to women in places like the Bowery in New York City forced them to come to terms with their own identities because the fairy embodied the very things middle-class men most feared about their gender status. The fairy's effeminacy represented, in an extreme form, the loss of manhood that middle-class men, those managers in the, in the factories, most feared in themselves. And the fairy's style seemed to undermine their efforts to shore up their manly status. The fairy's womanlike manner Challenged the supposed immutability of gender differences by demonstrating that anatomical males did not inevitably become men and were not inevitably different from women. The fairy's feminization of his body seemed to ridicule and highlight the artificiality of the efforts other men to masculinize theirs. Being called a fairy, became a serious threat to middle-class men precisely because the boundaries between the she-man and the middle-class man seemed so permeable by the 1890s, despite men's best effort to develop manly bodies grounded in natural pursuits. If you want to read more about that, it's the title of the book is Gay New York, Gender, Urban Culture, and the Making of the Gay, May World, Gay Male World, 1890 to 1940. So in using nature to justify heterosexuality, using nature to assert one's masculinity, if you think of masculinity like a knife, it was becoming duller in the 1890s and the early 1900s, according to middle-class thinkers, and they suggested that something needed to come along to sharpen it, and being active in the out-of-doors— was just the thing. So, using nature to justify masculinity and heterosexuality would become a crucial medical development in the late 1800s and into the early decades of the 20th century. Anyone who wasn't heterosexual was considered an invert, in short, unnatural, something otherworldly. We're going to save our discussions on that when we get into queer ecology, which is coming up. But keep in mind, that the idea of heterosexuality emerges at the moment that homosexuality becomes more visible because of these cities, that national parks and natural spaces were being created and curated by powerful whites in order to alleviate all of the fearful, strange things that were happening in those urban places in industrializing America. At the same time... uh. We have to think about that's a, chapter three, Indian reservations. We have to think about the emergence of parcels of land set aside during the same period that the national government was also setting aside nature preserves called national parks. These parcels of land that were set aside for a specific group of people came to be known as the Indian reservation system. And it emerges in the mid-19th century at sort of the same time that the national parks also become nationally celebrated and discussed. It is notable because these are spaces that white America deemed worthy of the perpetual presence of those humans who seemed incapable of fully assuming the mantle of civilization, also known as culture. In white narratives from the beginning of colonization through the mid-19th century, male natives, regardless of the tribe, seemed effeminate to white onlookers. And female natives looked equally unnatural, as many assumed leadership roles in their tribal governments. These folks were considered as less than human, and they needed to be controlled, much like nature. And this was the common thinking in the creation of the policies around Indian reservations. The best way to control both the nature and the humans was to corral them onto lands together. But not good lands, not lands that were sought after by potential white landowners or corporate America for natural resources. Rather, lands that dominant white culture deemed undesired and worthless. Unlike national parks, Indian reservations, thus, were parcels of land that white America deemed disposable places that seemed devoid of resources that would be of use to the industrializing and expanding nation-state. 1868 is a particularly important year, as it saw the signing of both the Fort Laramie Treaty between the United States government and the Sioux Nation on the Great Plains, and the Treaty of Bosque Redondo between the United States government and Navajo Nation in what is now Arizona, New Mexico, and Utah. Utah. Both treaties forced the indigenous peoples onto land with boundaries they did not recognize. I'm not going to do injustice to the history of hypocrisy that occurred with these treaties or to the native resistance to the federal government during these years uh, by by glossing over it. So rather than do a poor job, I'm going to let you explore uh, that history on your own. But what I want to note is that any time resources worth having, gold in the case of Fort Laramie and the Black Hills, or water and coal in the case of Navajo Nation, the terms of the treaties and the laws governing those lands switched and changed, always to benefit access to to citizens of the United States, and always due to the violent trickery of the white-led American government. Uh, Just as a side note, indigenous peoples would not become citizens of America until 1924. We will, in the coming weeks, think about water and coal in Navajo country, so I won't say much more here, but what is important to think about is the ways in which dominant white discourse, that in dominant white discourse, indigenous peoples in the Gilded Age go from being savages, incapable of being civilized, to being noble men and women whose savage natures could be tamed and civilized and their culture assimilated into dominant Euro-Anglo society." The same was true for the nature on their reservations. The hope was that these lands that no one really wanted would eventually yield agricultural abundance, and oftentimes there was an idea that there might be minerals underneath the lands that would also uh, provide some sort of living for the nations settled there. Both of these were promoted by agents from the Bureau of Indian Affairs, At the same time that young indigenous children were sent to white and often Christian-oriented boarding schools where native men learned how to be white men and native women learned how to be silent, powerless helpmates in the model of white Anglo-patriarchy. Earth Memory Compass is a fantastic book if you want to read more about this process of quote-unquote re-educating the noble savage. In some ways, the Gilded Age suggested that nature was being too tamed that wildness had to be let to live somewhere. But even the ideas of, why, of wild being preserved required a cultural creation, the idea and the creation of parks. What was really very much controlled by rangers and military officers was the most natural of places in the United States at the time. Other nature including that of white women, black men and indigenous peoples, had to continue to be controlled, monitored and paroled and subjected to intense structural control and repression. You can see this in several of the of the political debates at the time no women's suffrage, at least not until 1920, the reinforcement of Jim Crow segregation at the state level, and then even in the highest court of the land with the Plessy v. Ferguson decision of 1896, and, of course, the creation and maintenance of Indian reservations across the nation. Chapter 4, Riverbeds. But again, the wildness could not be too wild. It could not be uncontrolled in the mainstream mindset of policymakers in the gilded and progressive America. Thus, plenty of non human nature also was understood by thought leaders to continue to need to be brought under human control. Science and technology continue to exert their power over the imag- imaginations of most middle and elite Americans as the answer to any social dilemma. But especially any social dilemma that involved non human nature, and any social dilemma dilemma that involved the economy, especially agriculture and industry. I would argue that water, and especially water in rivers, was the first final natural, I'm sorry, was the final natural resource, especially in the arid United States West, that needed to be wrestled into subjugation in order to complete the manifest destiny of the nation state. And techno science was touted by thought leaders and policymakers as coming to human's aid in completing the project of utterly controlling that which everyone believed was the most difficult to control water. It flows, it moves. How does one own a drop of water? How does one claim a river? How does one know how much a river contains from one year to the next? Thus, that one piece of nature that really couldn't be counted or controlled was tried to be brought under human control in the United States in ways it had never been before. This story begins in the early 1800s or even the late 1700s with mills and mill power, uh, water wheel power in the mills in New England. But we're not gonna, we're not gonna worry about that here because it really becomes monumental, uh, extraordinary power in the early 1900s. In 1902, the Reclamation Act is passed by the federal government. It was touted as a conservation measure meant to capture water that was finicky in the arid West and hold it in basins called reservoirs so that white Anglo settlers could populate the West. And the West was increasingly understood to be an outlet for those who wanted to leave the filthy and ever-crowded and ever-growing cities on the East Coast. America was to be an agricultural nation, but if everyone lived in cities, became dependent on employers, what would happen to American democracy? Nonetheless, the East Coast and even the Midwest had filled up. So the next place for agriculturalists to move would be the U.S. West, but there was no water there. Difficult to grow plants, especially monocultural fields, of, of foodstuffs in a place that didn't have any reliable water. And so the Reclamation Act, if you dam the rivers and you hold the water in basins, natural basins, especially in the canyons that dot the, the entire Intermountain West, you then could ha- access that water even when the snows didn't fall or the rains were only a trickle. Teddy Roosevelt, our old friend, was one of the largest proponents of the, of the Reclamation Act. It is for him that the Roosevelt Dam in Arizona is named because he was such a strong proponent for this. But it's interesting to think about why Teddy loved dams. He loved them because of what they represented, power, raw power. Indeed, the dam itself was a masculine endeavor. It took extraordinary strength to erect these dams. It took extraordinary strength to reroute the river while you place the dam in the middle of the old uh, riverbed. And then, of course, it was a way to publicly display your omnipotence, your, mas- your manly omnipotence to an adoring and increasingly interested world. Hoover Dam uh, on the Colorado River would be one of the largest dam structures by the 1930s to exist in the world. And it was built specifically to not only dam the Colorado River in order for conservation of water, it also was built to create hydroelectric power. And Franklin Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt's cousin, had deep belief in scientific control of nature. Partly this might have been because he himself relied on technology considerably to overcome a childhood bout with polio. His wheelchair gave him mobility, and science itself allowed him to recover from the terrible disease. He promoted that dam, and over the course from the 1930s through the 1960s, the Colorado River would become the most dammed river in the world. The Glen Canyon Dam on the Colorado River, which creates Lake Powell, would be completed in the 1960s, and we will talk a little bit about the, the control of that water um, and its relationship to Navajo Nation uh, starting next week. But just keep in mind that the Glen Canyon Dam drowns one of the most sacred uh, places in Navajo culture, an area called Rainbow Bridge. And so, again, this notion that the techno science control of nature is really paramount to any sort of cultural sensitivity, is paramount to any kind of ecological considerations, is paramount even perhaps to good scientific understandings. So we've discussed this Anglo-European desire to suppress and control nature, both non-human nature, trees, rivers, coyotes, etc., but also human nature itself. It started, of course, our understanding with Carolyn Merchant's careful investigation of changing ideas of the nature of nature and the cultural belief systems in Western Europe in the 14, 15, 16, 1700s that were created to justify increasing needs to mine and take from what had once been considered a female organism with which humans lived in relative harmony. Humans in this time were not necessarily outside nature, and human nature was simply synonymous with all of nature. But by the time of the Protestant Reformation, by the time of the scientific revolution and even the enlightenment, the Christian placing of God as outside nature, Western scientific approaches to nature as atomistic pieces and parts that could be understood separately and then studied enough to be controlled, And finally, the capitalist imperative and the moment of imperialism that was necessary to adopt technology and accumulate capital and goods required what Merchant has called a death of nature. Nature had to become inert mechanical in order for humans to feel good about controlling and abusing it and notice that pronoun it versus her. And human control of a dead, or at least a subservient nature, was celebrated rather than bemoaned in dominant thinkers' ideologies. When then We then turn to the era of imperialism where we witness the conflation of some humans with nature and others with culture and civilization. If nature had to be controlled, it stands to reason that those humans more closely related to nature, we can thank Sherry Ortner for that thought, and then we see it actually manifest itself in Thomas Jefferson and other readings that we've had. But if nature had to be controlled, then it stands to reason that those humans who are more closely related to nature would also need to be controlled and considered as lesser and as other. These groups grew as European colonizers came into contact with new peoples. It was easy to cut down trees for ships' masts. And to destroy predators that threatened domesticated livestock, the wolf, the coyote, the bear. And it increasingly became easy to violently control human beings, too, that seemed to threaten the goals of Euro Anglo economic projects. Especially when the cultural myths that were told over and over again became embedded in political and legal structures that were as difficult to change as the path of a river. By the mid-20th century, these structures, these myths, and these projects were under deep critique. They had been so in fits and starts for many, many years by each of the groups who experienced their repressive results. But by the mid-20th century, by the mid-1900s, what with its intensifying consumerism and rampant production of consumer goods, what with its newly powerful scientific projects, including biological warfare, which was basically the creation of insecticides and pesticides and other nerve agents, meant to be used first in war, but then applied increasingly to agriculture. These kinds of projects, the mid-20th century obsession with genetic manipulation, and then the increasing ideas about how to efficiently manage not just labor, but also people in corporate America, as well as the forests and other ecosystems. The critiques in the midst of all of these scientific projects took on a new urgency. Not just the saving of nature, but perhaps of humankind as a species seemed to be what might be at stake by the 1950s and 60s. On a summer day in August of 1945, an example of what political ecologist Jane Bennett calls vibrant matter changed the course of any critique. The understanding with the US bombing of Hiroshima, Japan to end World War II, made many leaders of civil, racial civil rights, feminist movements, Marxist and conservationist movements to rethink nature and humans' relationships to it and the ideas about it in ways they could have never foreseen. That atomic explosion existed only because of the techno science elite supported by the federal government in support of promoting a way of life that was uniquely, uh, although not for very long, uniquely American, both democratic and free market capitalist. The contr- that explosion that was meant supposedly to free the world from totalitarianism had at its basic core the controlling of life at the level of the atom. And this control was a philosophical break in the human condition. So we think about the atom bomb and atomic energy as this radical technoscientific solution to totalitarianism, to unsustainable electric and energy needs. And that's all true, but it's not magic and it doesn't come from nowhere. This controlling of life at the level of the atom, the creation of that atomic energy, requires material resources. And those resources could be found in the United States in one particular place. It's called the Colorado Plateau, the site of Navajo Nation. The site of a place where earth was still female by many of the beliefs of the Navajo. Where rampant capitalism hadn't taken complete control, many still practiced subsistence agriculture, both the Navajo and even some of the smaller Mormon communities in Southern Utah. But a place left for dead in general by dominant Anglo society. Mormons lived there in a kind of semi-theocratic society Navajos were placed there on a reservation and it was it is a forlorn place full of beauty and remarkable scenery but nonetheless a place where most Americans would have considered barren these are the kinds of words they use a place written off as barren or as worthless that both the people and the land there were not to be considered as all that important but now suddenly In the 1940s and 50s, uranium and coal and the river, the water in it, all seemed essential to the continuation of American society as it had been conceived by thought leaders in science and government and business since at least the mid-19th century. One hundred years since the earliest American debates about what to do with the desert southwest, and suddenly its value to the nation-state became manifest. And it is nowhere better than in the developments, the disagreements, and the conflicts over the value of the West, but specifically the Southwest, specifically the Colorado Plateau, Southern Utah, Northern Arizona, that we see the debates we continue to have about human relationships to nature, nature's importance for human existence, the drumbeat of climate change, consistent racism and misogyny, and then the omnipotent imperative of capitalist growth. The debates we have over all of these are encapsulated and obvious and lived every day there in southern Utah and northern Arizona on the Colorado Plateau. And it's there that we're going to spend a bit of time in the next week. So I'm going to end there as a way to begin our discussions for week seven and eight. We have rich materials to help us think about each of these things. I hope this podcast was a nice break from normal lectures, and I also hope that it sets a nice context for what we move into in the coming weeks, but I also hope that it helps to begin to make connections among seemingly very different developments, and that perhaps it tells the stories of these places and these developments in a new way. I'm hoping, too, that the material that we consider in the next few weeks make you think about some things happening right in your very midst that you hadn't necessarily considered in this way before. Thanks for listening, and uh, please email me and let me know any questions you might have.